Career criminals are paid to travel from state to state, turning innocent people into criminals. These criminals are employed by the government and are paid with your tax dollars. They are called confidential informants, or CIs for short. Many confidential informants are tasked with finding people who are predisposed to commit certain crimes and providing them the opportunity to commit those crimes. Well, at least that's how it's supposed to work. But here's the reality. Hey, Pookie, you want a good government job? Well, the government will pay you over $100,000 in salary and benefits. Not because you have a degree or marketable skills, but because you have a criminal mind, you're on drugs, or you have an extensive criminal record. Now listen, all you have to do is hang out in bars and strip clubs, drink alcohol, and party with the people you plan to set up. We will also pay for your hotels and flights to cool cities. You may even receive a percentage of any drug money you can help us seize. Officially, I have to say, you will not be required to obtain arrest or convictions. Wink, wink. However, and unofficially, like any other job, you will be terminated if you don't perform. And by perform, I mean get lots of arrests and convictions. I worked with Jimmy for a short time in my work in Hollywood. But from what I can see, the reputation that he had built for himself in the music business made him very respected in Hollywood. He had gotten calls answered in reference to me that the team I was working with before either could not or did not make happen. Previously on Born Felon. Because what, what I didn't realize at the time was how much of a punk this guy, 50 Cent and Yeo is. I just couldn't believe how much of just little girls they were. Anybody who could jump on a 14-year-old who looked 12, you know they have to be a coward. If I really understood what kind of so-called men these guys were, if I really understood that they were boys, little boys with pants bigger than what they can wear, I would have definitely dealt with this difference, 100%, you know, 100%. What I could have done was just really just stay out of it. My son mother had tools, 50 Cent and Yayo, and I should have just allowed her to do that. Even before Luelle Fletcher died, the Post or the Daily News, one of them, had printed an article stating that somebody's gonna die because what they did to my son. And I should've knew that that was a sign that if anything happened to any of these guys, that I would've gotten blamed for it. But, but I knew that anyway. And it didn't take me to read a newspaper to know that. I'm gonna let you in on a dirty secret that only savvy defense attorneys who have argued cases at the federal level really understand. When prosecutors build their cases, not only are they relying on evidence, they gotta tell a story. And I know for a fact that U.S. attorneys look at cases on how they can tell a jury a good story. Todd Kaminsky, an enterprising U.S. attorney from Queens, knew with Jimmy Henchman, he had the foundation of a good narrative. For him, Jimmy's success in the music business didn't matter. What mattered was that Jimmy 
was connected to the streets. How much is still up for interpretation. When the FBI and United States attorneys start to build a case, they can utilize every tool. The FBI can run your financials, talk to business partners, snitches, or anyone for that matter. And a good U.S. attorney will do what Kaminsky did. He went in search of information inside federal prisons for people that knew Jimmy or anyone that could give him dirt. So continue okay. with Dexter Isaac. So, I mean, I would see him, we would be cordial, but however, it wasn't a situation where um, we were like crime buddies or anything like that. So I was really surprised. I had heard the rumors that he was a part of the whole, you know, Tupac thing. But um, so when, when we heard he had came down and that Todd Kaminsky was the prosecutor on that situation, we had figured that he was down there to, to discuss me. And then we had confirmed that when two or three guys from the neighborhood who knew him had said he had called them and asked, could they give him any information about me? Because they wanted to know if I had any murders that he knew about and stuff like that. That was the kind of stuff that he was looking for. So then at that point, I knew that he was definitely trying to helped them build a case on me. So Kaminsky went and pulled him out of MCC, or where, where was he? They pulled him from Pennsylvania, and they brought him down um, to MDC, and then they, they were interviewing him. MDC is located in Brooklyn, and people who are going to trial in the Eastern District are held at MDC. Both MDC and MCC, which is housed in Manhattan, are notorious jails. Many a celebrity criminal has been housed there. In any case of note that you see in the New York City news, the defendants are located at MDC or MCC. They were under the, the perception that being that he was a childhood friend of mine, that he must have known some things that never was found out about me. And, and again, they always thought that I was behind a, a lot of murders. So they, they were always looking for the violence, thinking that they would be able to build a case on the violence, especially because of the, the Tupac situation. At this time, is Comiskey still in Queens, or has he now made the transition? To no, the, he's now in the Eastern District of New York. As a, as a U.S. attorney? As a U.S. attorney, you know, Not only does he call Dexter down, he also calls uh, Ali Adam from Miami down. So, and that's when we really, it really was confirmed that the investigation was on me. And who was Ali Adam? And did you have a connection to him? Did you know him? Yes, I knew Ali Adam because when my guys was in Miami, I would have Ali Adam and his guys pretty much take care of all of my artists in, in Miami. So that was the connection. Somehow or another, somebody told them if there's any murders, it, Ali Adam probably knows. So not only did they call Dexter from my childhood, they also called Ali Adam down for interrogation. Ali Adam had caught a case in Miami. They had gave him 20 years, I believe. And, and from there, he, um, he started cooperating. So he was already cooperating. So they had brought him down also. 
and were questioning him in Miami, or they brought him to New York? No, they brought him to New York. They brought him to the Eastern District. And like I said, um, he didn't volunteer. They ended up calling him down, and, um, and he ended up calling me and my lawyer because he knew Jeff Lickman and telling him that Todd Kaminsky had called him down. Ali Adam agreed to speak to me on the record about his conversations with Todd Kaminsky. Ali was a Miami legend, one of the leaders of the Zopal Mafia, a Haitian criminal conglomerate that operated on the streets of Miami and other parts of Florida. Ali, or Zoe as he was called, was serving a 30-year prison sentence for drug trafficking. He was a figure with money who was able to mingle with hip-hop in Hollywood in South Beach. I met, I met Jimmy Hinchman through um, Wycliffe. You know, meeting Jimmy Hinchman through Wycliffe, you know, the feds, when they grabbed me, they came and talked to me and asked me, um, do I know anything about Jimmy James Roseman? And I told them, I crossed paths with him in the club. You know what I'm saying? I did a music deal with him, you know what I'm saying, with um, Black Ground Records. He helped me get a music deal, and he helped me do my publishing deal. And if um, I needed an artist, that um, he would help me book that artist. Within that, you know what I'm saying, the feds, you know what I'm saying, came to Miami to come see me. Todd Kaminsky came to see me, you know, in Miami. And I told him that, what I just told you. And four months later, he flew me to New York. He came and told me that if he gives out great deals on Rule 35, which is a motion that helps people, you know what I'm saying, go home. I said, well, what does that mean? He showed me a picture with me and Jimmy in the club together. And he showed four other pictures with that. I said, yeah, I probably crossed paths with him in the club. I think music did, but um, there's a lot of people in the music industry, you know, basically, you know what I'm saying, he helps people out with music dealing, you know what I'm saying, consultant. He asked me, did I shoot Suge Knight? I said, no, I got nothing to do with Suge Knight. He said, you have any, anything that you've gone through with G-Unit? I said, not at all. I don't know nothing about that. He said, um, well, I would like for you to ask around here in MDC Brooklyn about me. You know what I'm saying? I let people go home, and I can help you go home. He committed by calling my child's mother, Stacy Maycock, and telling her, you know what I'm saying, that um, he gave me an offer, you know what I'm saying, that he can send me home and will recommend me to go home, you know what I'm saying, with the time that I had left. I denied the offer, you know what I'm saying, and I left back to my facility. How much time was he, was Todd Kaminsky willing to take off of your sentence? 18 years. Did he specify what he wanted to know when he flew you to New York? Uh, yeah, well, he really, you know saying, see me as a perfect, how can I say, witness, you know what I'm saying, against Jimmy. Because I was charged with a King Thing charge, a lot of kilos. So it would be a great character witness of the people that he was hanging around. And he tried to infiltrate him into, like, my enterprise, like I was dealing with him. But it was nothing of that sort. So the the time frame is roughly 2004 all the way to 2011 when the indictment finally comes down? I believe it's 2004 or five after the when Game's friend got shot by 50 and them. This is when I believe it started. I believe it intensified around 2000 and um, maybe seven or eight, I believe it intensified um, right after my son was assaulted, and I think it intensified at that point. I also believe the reason why, while they were investigating me, that they couldn't find anything was because they really didn't know 
who was around me because I never really was in the country um, at all in those years. So in, until Muhammad Stewart got arrested in 2009, I believe, or eight, that's when it started intensifying again because they finally felt they had an insider with me that they can have either a murder conversation with or a drug conversation with. Because in these people's mind, I was out there um, going around killing people in their, in their headspace. That's what it was. So when by the time they got to Muhammad Stewart, they really believed that Muhammad would bring home their case. And again, for the two years or three years that Muhammad was, was taping me, I had not one drug conversation with him, nor did I have any violent crime conversation with him. You're claiming this guy's a confidant of mine. That's hard to believe that I wouldn't at least have a, a conversation about either drugs or or violence with him. And like I said the, the previously, is that the worst tape they had of me and, and Muhammad was after my brother got arrested and Henry Butler got arrested. I told him he needed to be careful because I knew he was working with them. And that was the tape that they used. I wasn't sure if he was an informant at the time, but when I see they didn't pick him up after arresting my brother and after arresting Henry Butler, then I was absolutely sure that he was an informant. But at the same time, I didn't know that he was also talking to Chuck Phillips about writing a book and so on and so forth. I couldn't understand after learning all this later how come Chuck was involved from the inset of my investigation um, and why was he in talking to witnesses that were witnesses against me. So I really believe that the government used Chuck to help them to get information to interrogate witnesses so that way they wouldn't have to go through the courts to get warrants and get subpoenas. So their way around all that, here go, let's take a guy who hate me so much that can can use the card as a, a, a journalist or investigative writer, and he can dig out um, answers from some of these guys that they necessarily would lie or embellish to us. And, um, and so I believe that Chuck helped in their investigation where they wouldn't need a warrant or they would have need a subpoena and question certain guys. I believe um, they would send Chuck to do those kind of doings for them so that way they wouldn't have to go the legal route. This is what I believe they recruit Chuck Phillips at that point. Chuck Phillips goes to um, the young lady over at the Daily News um, and have her write an article stating that I'm, I'm a snitch. This would be an interesting turning point in the investigation and indictment of James Rosemont. The article he is referencing was written by Allison Gandar in the New York Daily News on September 13, 2010. That article, they mentioned nobody who I snitched on. However, it was a snitch article. It isn't until later that we, we find the emails or George Campbell, you know, sends us the emails between the Daily News lady and Chuck Phillips. He tells us that Chuck 
kind of organized the whole article. And what I believe that article was done because they couldn't get no one to come lie on me at that. So at that point, in order to break the ice, they put out the snitch article to get guys to flip on me. And it didn't work, uh, uh, you know, in the beginning, but eventually it, it ended up working. Because even Ali Adams said when the article came out, um, they came to him and said, you still don't want to talk to us? And they put the newspaper on the table um, for him to read. And that was the tool that they were using. And then they had Chuck Phillips writing a bunch of letters to uh, to inmates all over the country that was in jail and um, trying to gather information for the U.S. attorney. That was like their last-ditch effort to try to get something bigger on me than a, uh, than a financial case. Once again, journalist Chuck Phillips finds himself in the middle of federal prosecutors and Jimmy Rosemont. Jimmy brings up a valid point and one worth exploring. Federal prosecutors are not above using the media to leak information, plant stories, and get informants to testify based on misinformation. Most of these tactics were honed in the Eastern and Southern District when they went after infamous mob bosses. U.S. attorneys in the Southern and Eastern Districts, if you can believe it, have access to the press. Reporters who cover the courthouses are given office space in the same building as the prosecutors so they can file stories quicker or leak information when needed. Here is Ali Adam again on Chuck Phillips. So I just wanted to talk to you about the Chuck Phillips and the story of your interactions or the letter that was sent. Yeah. Um, as I'm in, I was in um, MDC Brooklyn, um, I had received a, uh, a mail, and I opened it up. It was Chuck Phillips with a letter writing me telling me that... Um, I had participation within the grand jury that he know that um about robbery acts, about drug dealings, about violent acts that me and quote unquote he know me and Mr. Roseman had committed. Then he basically told me, Well, uh, you know, I I'm not gonna reveal no participation you have in it. What I wanna talk about is Mr Roseman. But anyway, Chuck Phillips called the prison. So they told me I had a phone call. I'm figuring maybe it's my lawyer, but I usually call my lawyers. So they said, uh, somebody want to speak to you, Chuck Phillips? Want to know, can they be on your visiting list? I said, who, Chuck Phillips? I said, no, nah, I don't know nobody by the name. So I got denied, I denied him that. So then he sent me a bunch of trial transcript and internet documents, um, daily news report he done did he sent me a bunch of internet garbage on himself and and then Jimmy and so I just proceeded on not saying not paying attention I got another call that I'm saying Chuck Phillips wouldn't know if I would speak to him I said god damn this man was on my motherfucking heels I don't got none of I got my own problems mind you right Don I got problems you know, Chuck Phillips was just adamant and imperative, you know what I'm saying, trying to just get in contact, but I never contacted him at all. To tell you the truth, what he's done personally in, in those dudes' life, I don't know how they can do that. Word through the grapevine in the prison system is 
him and Dexter and this dude, they made FBI documents. And they went on ahead and made FBI documents and the reporter supported it. You know what I'm saying? Just to make it easy for anybody to come in there and just basically, you know what I'm saying, tell Childish Lyle, tell them fibs on the man. How do you think Chuck Phillips came to even get your name to contact you? Only one way if you ask. Had to be Todd Kaminsky or one of them. It's a thousand niggas. There's 234,000 people in the federal system. I am, why? Let her, let her comes to me. Makes you want to write me. Who's telling you to write me? Who's persuading you to, you know what I'm saying, persuade me to, you know what I'm saying, to come do this on, and lie on this man? No is no. Yes is yes. Why is the persuading continue on? Why is the pattern of this? Of, of this pathological situation is not stopping. This is disease is just going down. Eventually, it caught him. It motherfucking burnt him. Let's be clear if you didn't catch what Ali was saying. First, Kaminsky was asking if Jimmy shot Suge Knight in a club in Miami. That shooting would have nothing to do with the Eastern District of New York. Second, Kaminsky asked about G-Unit and 50 Cent. I'm not sure what federal crime there is in regards to an ongoing feud between Jimmy and 50 Cent. Lastly, Kaminsky told Ali, ask around about me, implying that he was a prosecutor who was willing to make some deals. He was willing to let people out of jail for information. Telling a seasoned pro like Ali Adam, that was laughable at best, but I guess worth a try. Do you think that the U.S. attorney used Chuck Phillips as a tool? Absolutely, because they didn't need a subpoena if they got the information from Chuck Phillips. And I'm figuring, because they told Jeff Lickman that they was going to indict me soon, they were about to close the case. And then that's when um, everything started falling apart for me. In that Daily News article, and and I do have the article, what did they substantiate these accusations with? They didn't substantiate it with nothing. There's no way for me to be a snitch, right, if if nobody don't come forward to say, yo, he's snitching on me. Again, like the L.A. Times situation, you know, these are fabricated documents with fabricated individuals that all of a sudden, again, the lies become become true. So they take the same documents that Sabatino gave them. I guess they use it to substantiate their daily news article. And at that time, when they say that they're, they tell Lickman that they're, they're doing a financial investigation, do you see any indications that have they frozen your bank accounts? Have they subpoenaed banks for records? Do you have any indication what exactly that means? What they did was they raided my accountant's office, grabbed my assistant for questioning. And the reason why I knew it was a financial case is because everybody who was interrogated in regards to me, um, they had an IRS guy in, in the room with them also. So it wasn't no reason not to believe that this was just a financial case. In big drug cases, federal prosecutors will always work with an IRS agent to do a forensic accounting and really trace all the money that is coming in and out of a subject's bank account. While Jimmy might have thought that this was just a financial case, from experience on other drug cases I have reported on, 
this is the same working model of the FBI, the DEA, and the U.S. attorney. They follow the money. It was obvious that the feds had identified who they thought was operating either with Jimmy or close to Jimmy in order to build a federal narcotics case. They would have to prove that Jimmy had soldiers or associates who worked with or for him. If he was a drug kingpin, they would have to prove with evidence that he actually had an organization. And they would tell me that Kaminsky would ask them, what kind of shoes do I wear? What kind of watch do I have? This is when I knew that this guy had an admiration for me and that he was trying to make a name for himself. I felt creepy about it. Like, why is this guy asking you something like that? After they seize the records and they bring John Dash and other people in for questioning, what's the end result of all that work and all that questioning? Do they do they then have a financial case after that or no? Well, around that same time, this is when they must have got a lead um, about Khalil Abdullah. At this juncture, Jimmy is going to start introducing who the government alleges were part of what they called the Rosemont Organization. Mohammed Tef Stewart was someone who was around Jimmy. He worked at the henchman offices. And what role he played as of now is still hazy. Khalil Abdullah was um, dealing with my brother in Los Angeles. At the same time, Mohammed Stewart, who was taping me for the last two years, had finally got introduced to Henry Butler in, in Los Angeles. And so their drug case started developing at that point. So they held off the, the financial indictment on me to see if the drug situation uh, could develop. And they thought that uh, that Muhammad Stewart would be the one to bring in the drug case on me. So anytime Muhammad would come to me and try to question me, I would tell him I don't know what he's talking about when it came to drugs. So when my brother introduced him, to Henry Butler Black out of Los Angeles, he started asking him questions in regards to me. And one of the things that that Henry Butler had said to him in one of the tapes were that he had a million dollars for me, that he was um he was waiting on his people and that he was waiting to buy a million dollars worth of drugs for me. So that must have really made them feel that they were very close to a drug case with them. But in fact, Henry Butler was embellishing his com- his conversation with this guy, and he ended up selling him one kilo at that moment. So they really thought that Henry Butler was my 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 um, supplier. So somehow they tied Khalil with my brother and um, with Henry Butler. So they arrested Henry Butler feeling that Henry Butler would be the one to tie me into the drugs. When Henry Butler was arrested, the first thing he said was that I would, he definitely never dealt with me and that he dealt with some guys in, in Philadelphia. After time of pressure and they kept telling him that they, they knew that he was dealing with me, he ended up saying, yes, he dealt with me. But um, that, wasn't, that wasn't the truth. So when they, when after they got Henry Butler, Khalil Abdullah had retained the attorney for him. I knew Black for a long time. He said that I wanted to donate any money toward his legal defense. I gave him ten thousand. 
Khalil Abdullah put 10000 into it. But Black's wife had contacted me and asked me, can I donate some money toward his legal fund? So I gave them $10,000 toward that. His wife is Leah, Leah Daniels, who's Lee Daniels' um, sister. And she ended up getting arrested at the same time with, um, with Henry Butler because there was, I guess, some machine guns and drugs in the car when um, they arrested him and she was with him or something like that. So they arrested her too. I need to pause here because Jimmy is starting to break down elements of the federal case against him. Mohammed Tef Stewart was the first person around Jimmy to decide to cooperate with the government. With that cooperation, Mohammed Tef Stewart not only wore a wire, he tried to record phone conversations. He also tried to record video via a hidden camera inside a baseball hat. In Jimmy's version of events, Muhammad Stewart wore this wire for close to two years around Jimmy. I don't want to get ahead of the story, but there is something to note here that we will revisit. In the two years of wearing a wire, Muhammad Stewart never once recorded any transactions as it relates to drugs or any other crime for that matter. Just keep that in mind. Finally, Jimmy mentions his brother and Henry Butler another two people that the FBI and U.S. attorney stated were part of the Rosemont organization. So when, when, when Black ended up started to say that he was working for me and that he was my supplier, Khalil Abdullah came up with the bright idea because I, I would tell him all the time that I'm being investigated. And, and every time Kaminsky's name would come up, so um, he comes up with the bright idea. He was sending some money to Los Angeles. He steals about a million dollars of the money. He sends a letter to Kaminsky and to the DEA, and he states that the person you're investigating in the music business, this is his money. What he didn't realize was when he went to Kinko's, that they have cameras in Kinko's. So when he faxed the paper, the number of Kinko's came up. And so when they looked at the camera, they see that it's Khalil Abdullah. Why would he do this to Jimmy? What we learned later was they stopped Khalil coming out of his house, and they told him, hey, why would you set Jimmy up? And he was, like, in shock, and he was like, why would you think I set Jimmy up? And they said, okay, cut the nonsense. We've seen the videotape. We know it's you who sent the facts to Todd Kaminsky. We want Jimmy. We don't care about you. We want you to wear a Y on Jimmy with a drug conversation. Now, according to the government, Khalil was my lieutenant. If, if, I, if Khalil was my lieutenant, it would have been no problem for Khalil to come to me and have a drug conversation with me. The reason why Khalil refused to do it was because he couldn't have a drug conversation. I never was having drug conversation with Khalil. So he refused to, to take me. He just told them he didn't want to do it. And so they let him stay out for another two weeks. He told them he would think about it, though. And um, after that, they arrested him. So when they arrested him, and then I found out that he was arrested by Todd Kaminsky. So I asked um, Jeff Lickman to go to 
Khalil Abdullah's arraignment. And at the arraignment, Todd Kaminsky read the letter that he wrote to him, stating that the money was mine. And at that point, Jeff Lickman called me and said, Khalil is your snitch, and Khalil is the one who's putting you in this whole situation. I literally, I literally dropped the phone and was in shock. My mouth is open. I'm just in shock that he set me up. At that point, I pretty much knew that I was definitely being indicted. This is a lot of information to take in. But cutting through all the names, what I want to make clear is this. It is alleged that Khalil Abdullah, Jimmy Rosemont, and Henry Butler were all narcotics traffickers. In those relationships, the core of what the truth is might never be known. But in order for Jimmy to be indicted, and in order for the government to get their headline, they would need to place Jimmy at the top of the food chain, the boss. Was Jimmy Rosemont a successful music industry executive and manager, also on the side, moving kilo quantities of cocaine? Or was Khalil Abdullah and Henry Butler the real drug kingpins? Next time on Born Felon. And I look at one of the agents and I'm like, I know y'all guys ain't serious. And then they escort me in front of the camera and give me the perp walk. And then what they end up doing is releasing that to the public to humiliate me. This was all for show. This wasn't by chance some photographer just so happened to catch. No, they, they, they prepared that whole situation. And I swear to you, man, I looked at this guy. I said, man, are y'all serious? He's like, well, you shouldn't have put out that statement against Todd Kaminsky.